Hey, hey, it's Stephen, host of the Black Doctors Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. This week's a little different. It features Dr. Alaron Kong. He is going to share his story about his journey into medicine as well as his journey out of medicine. He did leave medicine after a couple of years of practice to pursue his new passion, which is in writing. He talks about his transition from becoming an internal medicine physician to becoming a best-selling sci-fi fantasy author. Dr. Alaron Kong is the father of American Lit RPG, if you don't know what that is, I didn't either prior to speaking with him. Stay tuned for later on in this episode. It's pretty cool. Also, check out our website, www.theblackdoctorspodcast.com. Uh, we're working on rolling out some new features. You can probably get a sneak peek if you check it out now. Stay tuned for some exciting new things that we're bringing to the show in the next couple of weeks and months. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre med and medical students as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less but remember more. Hello, I'm Stephen, host of the Black Doctors Podcast, here to talk about Clove. Clove is a sneaker specifically designed to meet the needs of healthcare professionals. I have a pair and I love how comfortable these shoes are, especially since I'm on my feet all day as an anesthesiologist. These shoes are perfect for the operating room because they are extra grippy and super easy to wipe clean at the end of the day. Purchase any pair of clove shoes and compression socks at checkout. Use the code BDPXCLOVE to get your socks for free. A $22 discount just by listening to the show. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. So excited to be speaking with Dr. Alaron Kong. He has an incredible story to share about the different twists and turns his life has taken. He is the first and potentially the only at this point triple Morehouse alumnus having gone there from... Uh, undergrad, medical school, as well as residency. Dr. Kong, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure. Um, we're definitely going to get into this incredible direction your career has taken in terms of becoming an author and just the creative work that you've done. But let's start at the beginning. Did you decide to become a physician first or did you want, did you know you wanted to have this career in the arts? No, man, I had, a, I had a very, very atypical pathway. Um, I actually started Dartmouth, uh, partied way too much, uh, <laughs> dug ditches for a year, was blessed enough that um, a very amazing brother decided to take pity on me and let me start restart my college career at Morehouse College. Um, <clears throat> after digging ditches for a year, you learn that studying isn't that hard. So I dedicated myself to doing well there and decided that I wanted to become a physician um, I'd grown up around uh, medicine. My mom's a pedi- uh, pediatrician uh, who worked with like HMOs. And my dad was the CEO of the Association of Black Cardiologists. Um, and honestly, my exposure to physicians had kind of made me not want to be mm-hmm. one because they weren't always the most cohesive, healthy, or happy people. But in the midst of digging ditches, I also reached out to other 
other people and tried to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I met this amazing woman named Michelle Albright who let me follow her at uh, the Brigham for several weeks over a summer. And the idea of dedicating my life to service while at the same time living a good lifestyle seemed way better again than digging ditches. <laughs> Uh, so when I went back to college, <clears throat> um, I just sort of kept my head down, except for popping up at Spelman every once in a while. And then three years later, I was lucky enough to get accepted to Morehouse School of Medicine and sort of just started, kept figuring it out from there. So that's, the, that's, the, that's the early synopsis. So we got to dig into this. So my background, I worked construction for a couple of years um, between uh, high school and the first two years of college. So how did you end up, I'm assuming you grew up in the Northeast, but how did you end up digging ditches? So when I was growing up, my mother was a corporate climber. Like I said, she got her training in pediatrics, but switched over to managed care like HMOs when it was booming. So we would move basically every year and a half of my life. So I grew up, you know, living in like 14 different houses until I settled in Atlanta when I was about 14. When I went to school, uh, it was a big shock to everybody that they uh, sent me home with a salami sandwich and a bus ticket. Um, and they very much almost like acted out that scene from a uh, Cosby show where like, you know, they try to take Theo to the army recruiter kind of thing. But <laughs> I actually was able to link up with this guy who worked a construction crew and he's like, yeah, he seems like you're smart enough. And he took me in and um, I kind of r- rose up the ranks at the age of 18 over like a several months. And then I was running a crew of like five other dudes simply because I had the math where wherewithal to do some of the calculations that they needed. Um, and that's basically how that worked. I basically was just there for everything from cement pours to meeting with city planners and learned a lot about the business. And it's a great business, but um, I didn't necessarily like that the guys that I were working with were always talking about how the A-Rabs were coming mm, for them yeah. or how they were talking about how they were excited. They found a gun small enough that their kids could hold it when they were eight. And I'm like, this is just not what I want with my life, honestly. Um, and so, like I said, it's, you stop complaining about, about, about exercising your mind once your back hurts every day. Right. So, yeah, man, that, that's awesome. And definitely a formative experience, man. I don't, you know, I, I can't say anything about, the experiences I had working construction and in the, in the hot Florida sun and all that it definitely gives you a different perspective on life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Standing on a cement slab in the middle of Georgia heat when it's white and you're just about <laughs> to pass out and you hear people taking bets about what you're going oh. <laughs> to fall over. You're like, that's not, this is not, not all of a sudden, you know, medical school is not, not so bad. Not, <laughs> not so bad at all. <laughs> Cracking those books is not that heavy. So, so Dr. Kong, you said you shadowed this um, Dr. Albright at the Brigham, and that kind of inspired you and introduced you, gave you some representation, further representation, because your, your parents are already engaged in the medical field. That was before or after you attended Morehouse? So that was before. Um, basically, there was a year and a half in between um, leaving Dartmouth and starting Morehouse, probably a little bit, maybe closer to two years. Um, where I did a lot of different jobs. I worked in construction for the longest for about um, a year plus. But in between there, I also was able to sort of go up, you know, try different things. I mean, I worked a lot of different jobs. I was a restaurant manager. I was a substitute teacher. I was a chess coach. I was washing cars door to door. Like, it was a big surprise like that to me that, you know, I actually was not bulletproof and that life threw me a curveball when I was younger. 
but I'm also Jamaican. So my first <laughs> job was washing toilets every Saturday, hundred toilets at the age of six every Saturday. So, you know, just I was just going out there and just, you know, making money. And honestly, it was a little bit strange because, you know, be, even with the curveball, being 18 and having like, you know, a bunch of disposable income because you're willing to hustle, you, you still start feeling like you're bulletproof again. And I'm, I'm lucky enough that my parents do not mince words. And they made sure that I remembered that <laughs> I, I had better potential in me. So what uh, what restaurant did you manage? Um, it was one of the Buckhead Life ones. I don't even think it exists anymore. It's called Naba. Um, so I worked there starting as a host and they had me do some like, you know, junior manager position kind of stuff. And, um, I mean, that was one of the things that like sort of, sort of struck me. It did teach me a lot. Like I worked a corporate job for about six months as well. Um, and it was basically like this pilot project where they were trying to get all of the HMOs and insurance in Georgia under one umbrella. And again, went in there 18, 19 years old. And then I had a crew of like five people working under me that were like 40, 45 years old. And something did not sound right about that, even to me. You know, I was like, this, there's something not so good about this corporate life. And then I remember I came in one day and uh, my boss's boss, this guy named John, the real, real, I don't know, real dick. Um, But still, he was my boss's boss. And I hadn't left until seven o'clock the night before. And I would always get in early. So I got there at like 6.30 in the morning and his, his, his office was cleaned out. Mm. He had been there when I left. He was gone before I showed up. And I said, what happened to John? They're like, oh, he got downsized. And it's like these different jobs that I did definitely taught me a lot of things that I don't want to do. Yeah. You know, like the idea, because John was like, you know, 55, something like that. And the idea of just like, you know, one day somebody just like giving you a slip and telling you to clean out your, your desk and you have to kind of figure it out. I was like, this is not the kind of thing that I want to bank my future on. Uh, same thing with like the construction. Like it was great in a lot of ways. There's a lot of satisfaction, in, you know, seeing the results of a hard day's labor. But at the same time, with the way it's going to feed you mentally, emotionally, everything else like that, and sort of like what that life looks like. A lot of the guys that I'm working with never went to college. They, you know, had been captain of the basketball team, married their high school sweetheart, you know, uh, big, thick mustaches, kind of like super troopers. <laughs> like, you know, good guys. They really knew what they were doing. But I'm like, this is not, it kind of just tells you like what you do and don't work. Right. You know? Yeah. So you continued on to Morehouse. Tell us about your time mm-hmm. there in undergrad. Obviously, you made some fantastic connections, one of which uh, Dr. Italo Brown introduced the two of us, put us yeah. together. That's why we're here today. Talk about uh, Morehouse. Uh, I mean, again, I was lucky enough that they took a chance on a knucklehead. Um, I definitely didn't plan to squander it. I basically just kept my, my nose to the grindstone and went from being a student that got kicked out of an institution to being an A-plus student because I knew that I was trying to get some things done. And, you know, honestly, because of that, I think I missed a lot of the classic experiences that you would have coming out of Morehouse. We're talking about, you know, in the AUC or HBCU. So I was just like, not again. I, I would have nightmares about <laughs> being on that slab forever, just boiling in 100 degree heat. And so I just studied, studied, studied. And then, you know, put my applications out, interviewed. I was able to walk across the street to Morehouse School of Medicine. And they took me in and, you know, sort of grinded through that. And never, it was never like a big, uh, I know exactly what I want. I know exactly where I'm going to go, you know, kind of thing. Like, I had the idea of being a doctor when I was a kid the same way I had the idea of being a magician or a cowboy or a ninja. You know, I mean, 
These were all, these were all equal dreams to me. But I will say that now knowing what's on the other side of medicine, I still do recommend the pathway to people that are really about it. I, I'm, I'm very real about the pluses and minuses. I think that we should do that more with people that want to go into medicine as opposed to selling them pocket full of drinks. But uh, I still do recommend it. It's a good life. And you stayed on. You didn't maybe didn't get the undergrad experience at Morehouse, but you stayed around to attend the Morehouse School of Medicine. What were the differences mm-hmm. that you thought between undergrad and, and grad school there? I'd say that every new phase of my life, I always think it's going to be this like lofty, amazing, you know, intellectually driven, fueled, whatever. And, you know, when I went to medical school, it was like high school, a bunch of, bunch of kids in the back, basically mean girls, making fun of everybody else, a bunch of nerds over here, uh, you know, a couple of jocks that like to work out, yeah. you know, people sleeping with each other, pretending they hadn't slept with yeah. each other. I mean, it's just, it's just pretty, pretty accurate at, yeah, at every level that you get to. Um, and in the meantime, you know, you're cutting up bodies and looking at histo slides and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, I, I, I personally think that uh, we, we try to mystify all of these amazing things so that we seem more mysterious and no one wants to look behind the curtain. But I don't know. I'm, I'm a big believer in saying the only thing you can tell about a doctor is that they went to medical school. You can't tell about they got any sense. You can't even tell if they believe in evolution or COVID. Sadly, so <laughs> <laughs> you said you uh you didn't mince words when we first got on the call. Um, yeah, so so far so good. Um, so as you're coming out, you did residency, but you mentioned a minute ago kind of the pros and cons of medicine of becoming a physician. Can you kind of break down some of those pros and cons as as you've experienced? Yeah, um, I think that. It's 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 tough if you listen to people that have been out for a while. A lot of doctors seem like they just really like a lot. I think it, no matter what branch of life you go into, people try to focus on on the negatives. But I think that people forget that there's a lot of blessings in making six figures a year in mm-hmm. America. There's a lot of things that you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry that your kid's going to get the antibiotics that they need. You don't need to worry that, that you're going to keep food on the table. You don't need to worry that you're going to be able to you know, fix your car. So you're not having to ride the bus and add an extra three hours to your day, you know, having like, you know, been knocked down, having known a lot of people, I never really sleep on those innate blessings that I think a lot of us take for granted because they really do typify and completely change your life. If you're worried about how you're going to pay for your kids' medical bills, that's the most important thing in your life. That changes. That's what you, how you would define that decade that you live in. But if you're lucky enough to have insurance, you're lucky enough to do these kind of things. I mean, then you can complain about, I don't know, your iPhone's not fast enough. (laughs) And that's what you're complaining about. So the idea that you have a career that is 100% reliable, they're not going to run out of sick people. You're going to make a good living that's going to provide for you and your loved ones. That's not something I sleep on. And that's one of the reasons that I say like medicine is still a good thing. Also, you're living a life of service. Like that doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt to make your life about more than just you. I think it reminds us when we get through difficult things and to that there's things outside of ourselves that makes difficult things easier. It keeps us more grounded, makes us better people. I think there's something you said for that as well. And the impact that you have. I mean, just literally the lives that you touch that you never know the reverberations and not just something dramatic, like, you know, like you see on a TV show, like, you know, where you, you know, stop someone from bleeding to death after they've been shot or something like that. But, 
the number of patients that I've had come in, black patients that were 50, 60 years old, have been living with the same chronic conditions for 30 years. And because they'd never had a black doctor before, no one had ever stopped to actually teach them about their medications, tell them why they shouldn't eat salt so much, tell them why this sort of happened, make them an active part of their, their goals. I mean, the truth is racism exists. It exists in medicine. Yeah. I've seen physicians call a code on someone while he was breathing. Like they said, okay, let's call it. And we're like, he's breathing. What are you talking about? Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm just saying like things happen. Mm. So I think it's good to have um, a diverse workforce to take care of diverse people to understand, to care more and to be able to relate in ways that we don't. I went to school with a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, African people who knew things about their population that I didn't. We had a patient come in, we couldn't figure out the nidus of infection and they pointed out that he had some of these tribal marks and they're like, yeah, that, that, that can present with a latent hepatitis. And that was the right diagnosis. Wow. Nothing I would have ever thought about, you know? So I think it's really good to have, you know, white, black, Asian, native American men, women, Christian, Muslim, because basically with the idea of diversity is important because if we all think the same, we're all going to have the same blind spot. So yeah, that's why I think it's good to be, why medicine is a good thing. Yeah, and, and I had a conversation recently with the folks at Medics Academy. It's an organization out of South Carolina. And one of the topics that came mm-hmm. up was diversity. And so often we focus on ethnic diversity when there's the diversity of your your location that you grew up, the different jobs you had, you know, the difference between folks that actually like did construction or uh, service industry mm-hmm. jobs and then worked in, in medicine. And all that perspective that comes along um, really changes the flavor of medicine and makes it more representative of the patients as well. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the cons. What are some of the cons of uh, medicine? <laughs> uh, it takes forever. <laughs> Doctors have some of the worst PR in America. Doctors are in the bottom three trusted professions by the most recent census. People that have any issues with medicine, which there are a lot in this country, it is absolutely criminal that the number one cause of bankruptcy is medical bills. Mm-hmm. Um, especially while insurance companies have, are making half a billion dollars, le- I'm sorry, half a trillion dollars last year. In, in addition, the corporatization of medicine is removing the autonomy from a lot of doctors. And it seems like almost every field. And I mean, I think that's what it really comes down to. Like you go back to the fifties and you know, it seems like doctors could order police around. They'd be like, all right, hey, Jonesy, go do this. And they're like, yes, sir, doctor, whatever. You're a doctor, of course. And now, you know, you had that black woman who was trying to help that, that guy who was choking on the plane and Air Marshal tried to take her down. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, there's definitely, there's a lot of issues that the rest of society has, like classism, racism, everything else that's fell into it. But also there's just the lack of connection between and and trust that I think used to be there between the medical profession and everything else because of the corporatization of it. You know, I mean, doctors used to be okay with putting in hundred hours a week because that was the calling. That was what they had to do. It was, you didn't necessarily get remunerated for it financially, but there was a respect. There was an honor behind it, but it kind of gets to the point where it's like you're being kind of sold this pocket full of dreams of, well, you guys should still do that. Right. But suddenly you realize that like, you know, if you can't figure out the sucker at the poker table, it's you. 
And, you know, I think especially this latest generation is sort of getting like, no, 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 we're not going to believe any of that stuff that you're telling me because you're trying to shortchange doctors hours during COVID, tell them that you can't, don't have the money to pay them. And again, made half a trillion dollars mm. last year. So I think a lot of, I think there's a lot of disconnect, especially with new doctors that are coming out there like, Hey man, don't try to tell me anything. Just tell me how much you're paying me per hour and I'll let you know when I show up. And I think it was better the old way, honestly, it seems like, but this is the society we live in now. So one of the things that I try to like make clear with, um, with, you know, a lot of the kids that I mentor, and I call them kids, there's like 20 <laughs> men or women, but you know, if you're younger in medicine, you're a kid to me. Um, but I, just, I, I try to like, just let them know like the things that I think that doctors talk about regularly that honestly are never touched on in medical school. Yeah. We never talk about interpersonal relationships and conflict resolution with colleagues in medical school, which is one of the most important things that comes up across the board. We're not talking to them about contract negotiation. We're not talking to them about, you know, not even defensive medicine medically as far as, you know, charting things like that, but having to deal with nurses or other doctors or other specialties that may run into you and then suddenly you're written up. There definitely is a color bias. I mean, I would be with my... My, my white colleagues um, would work in the hospital and they would just be cussing these mm -hmm. nurses out. Mm -hmm. and I would be like, oh my God, this is horrible. The nurse would be like, oh, yes, sir. I'm so sorry, sir. And then I would go up and be like, hi, uh, is that stat lab back? Like, hey, you cannot talk to me like right. that. And it's like, okay, okay. <laughs> um, or you get a big lecture when you first come in, like, hey, we got to limit resources. We got to make sure that everything's being allocated, da 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 da. And then so you get calls about patient dispo and you're like, no, actually we had a meeting about this. We cannot accept that patient. Da, da, da. And the next day, like, hey, we heard you're being a little argumentative. And it's like, really? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I do something wrong? Let me know. They're like, oh, no, we agree with your medical decision making. And I'm like, but and then you realize what's actually going on. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's just basically what I try to tell people. Like, it's an amazing job. It's a job that helps people. But it's a job. It is a job. You will not find meaning in the hospital for your life and people that try are miserable. And I'm saying that having been through the trenches, knowing it, but also having grown up in it and seeing the doctors from 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, and the amazing legacies that they have professionally, but also being there when the scotch is flowing a little bit and they're really kind of letting you know what's going on. You cannot find meaning in the hospital. And I think that people are starting to wise up to that, but there's still this, um, I don't know, this sort of gestalt that you're, that it's, it's a dirty thing to talk about quality of life. It's a dirty thing to talk about mental and emotional health, despite all the things that we go through. Yeah. I personally think that the training of medicine is the most difficult training that exists outside of the armed forces and certain branches of law enforcement. Um, the, the toll that it takes is real. And I think that it's important to talk about that kind of thing because we're losing young, bright people um, regularly. So those are some of the things that I think are wrong with medicine on the inside, not even, again, talking about the way that it should be serving our population, which is a whole other thing. But yeah. No, it's good. Uh, some fantastic insight and definitely a different perspective, which um, it's funny how some of the things you mentioned resonate with me and a lot of folks. If you've been through residency as a black person, 
so many times something happens and I wouldn't catch it right away. And then I think about it and then I realize like, oh yeah, that's what, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Kong, you worked in internal medicine uh, or you completed residency and then I assume you practiced for a bit before changing into a completely yeah. different field. So I finished residency. Uh, again, I'm Jamaican, so we work a lot. Um, <laughs> and I was ready to start my job five days later. It was my dad's 70th birthday. And my mom called and cussed me out and said, you cannot miss this. So I actually started three weeks after I finished residency. Um, I worked as a nocturnist, a nighttime hospitalist. I did that for five years and two days. Uh, Five years was definitely when I got vested, uh, which is a good thing to do. And yes, I, I mean, it's crazy thinking that I spent five years of my life awake at night, but I definitely did. And then I didn't really have any issue with the job exactly. Certainly, I think that a lot of people think that I'm outside of medicine when they think of, hear about the stress that a doctor may experience. They're like, oh, yeah, the patients. And honestly, that was never really my, my issue. Like, there's some crazy patients, but like, you know, I'm, I'm a big boy. My job is to manage people and make them better. Right. I never really had any stress for patients. Even like I would walk in a room and, you know, it would just be pure camo and a bunch of eyes just zeroing in on me. I would be like, all right. I shipped up the accent a little bit. Like, all right, y'all, what y'all need to know is that I'm going to handle this. And they're like, you're all right, buddy. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know? So like, it wasn't that, but I do think that there are a lot of medical professionals, uh, specifically doctors that are very disillusioned by the very things that I'm talking about their issues in, um, in medicine. And again, I was hoping that once I, you know, finished residency and I was around all of these just highly, highly educated people, some of the most educated people in the history of the human race, easily argued to be whatever, um, that it would, again, we'd be having intellectual discussions and topics constantly about how we can improve the overall public health or whatever. And again, just a bunch of mean girls in high school a lot of time. And so I think you have a lot of people that are disillusioned with their lives in medicine and sadly, it sort of becomes a crabs in a barrel kind of thing where you have unhappy people that then make other people unhappy that then make more people unhappy. And it seems like it's, it's this sort of self-reinforcing um, kind of uh, cycle, uh, positive feedback mechanism to have negativity. Um, and I've seen it. I saw it in my own life. I saw it in a lot of people that there was maybe like there was this, there was this attending that we had that was just, she was just an absolute dragon. Like she was just scary. Everyone was afraid of her. We would, you would run to another ward if you saw her coming. And then she left uh, our residency and worked somewhere else. And we randomly ran into her at another hospital and she came up and hugged us. And we were like, what is going on? This is, so she's like, I am so sorry. I was so unhappy. I didn't even realize it. I thought that I was being normal. I was not. I apologize. And I get what she's talking about because I was worked that job for five years. It was not in any way the worst, though there were some negative elements to it. Um, and there, and it was a hostile work environment for others. And I left and I slept for 14 hours a day for like 33 days in a row. Um, I was just emotionally there and I woke up and I felt like myself again. And I was driving on the road like two days later with my girl and someone cut us off and I'm like, ah, that wasn't nice. And she goes, who are you? You're not chasing them down. You're not cussing them out. And I'm, I was just like, you know, it just doesn't seem that deep anymore. I don't know. I honestly think doctors just need a nap. 
more than anything else. <laughs> so that, that's a, a crazy perspective once again. But so, Dr. Cog, I got to ask you this. When did you, when and how, rather, did you become the father of American yeah. RPG? So, yeah, lit RPG is a, is a genre of sci-fi fantasy that basically combines video games and sci-fi fantasy. And I've always been a big nerd, read every sci-fi fantasy book there was growing up and played a lot of video games, too. Um, and in my downtime, when I was, you know, after I finished residency, I found this genre. And it had only appeared in the U.S. like maybe three, four months before that. Um, and it came out of like Russia, I think, or Korea. I don't know if you're asking a Russian or a Korean. Um, and there were, there were like four books for sale, you know, and two of them were, three of them were translations. One of the translations was obviously Google translated made zero sense, but I thought it was awesome. I thought it was amazing. And I was looking for a balance in my life. Like, um, and it was one of, again, one of those things when I was growing up of like, Oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a wizard. I want to be a cowboy. I want to be a fireman. One of the was like, you know, I always want to be a writer. Then I would immediately follow up like, Oh, that'll never happen. But I had the time and I had the energy and I was looking for something again to balance out my life, figure out, you know, figure some things out. And so I just started writing and I wrote my first book, including all the edits in six weeks. Wow. And then I wrote six books in 14 months. And I had a buddy who was one of my best friends, a guy named James Marine. He was lucky enough. He connected me with one of his buddies who'd published before. Cause I thought I didn't know anything about publishing. I thought it was the kind of thing where I had to submit a manuscript and, you know, hopefully somebody liked it, you know, kind of like that, that old thing where like, you know, they're bored at a cocktail party and they see a manuscript and then they fall in love with it. And, you know, then they're traveling around the world, <laughs> that kind of thing. But, um, I don't know, back in like 2011, maybe something like that, uh, Amazon just said like, Hey, anybody that wants to publish a book, sign up for a free web, sign up on our website for free. It's called Kindle direct publishing, upload your manuscripts, upload a cover, you're an author. Boom. That's it. Easy as that. I mean, the trick is making people buy it or you can find out about it, you know? So that, that was a straight hustle, but it sort of took off. And also in addition to me writing these books, there was no social media behind it. And I fell in love with the genre so much because again, super nerd that I was like, I don't just want my success. I want to see this genre blow up. And that's where I got that moniker, the father of American with RPG, not because I invented it, because I was just constantly pushing it every day, like telling other interviews about it. And then one of my fans said it once, and I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. Uh, did not occur to me how upset it was going to make other authors. Man, mm. that was the, the big old, or just the big old one-two punch I gave me. He's like, Hillary's emails. Like, it's not what you're really mad about, <laughs> but you're going to talk about it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I'm proud, I'm proud of how it all worked out. I've got five, nine books out now. It's been like six years, and work on a bunch of other stuff. So yeah, go over. And uh, you're, you're selling yourself short because you are a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Your series has sold over 100, or sorry, has sold over a million copies. Mm-hmm. And you've received over 100,000 five-star reviews. You've also written, I've never heard of this before, a comedic fantasy opera entitled The Land. What is that? Yeah, that's my that's my main um, that's my main book series. Um, when I was growing up, I always thought that the most impressive thing that could happen from reading a book is to make you actually laugh wholeheartedly. So humor is a very very big part of my of my books, um, along with like you know just you know 
violent scenes and magical world building, all the things that I liked um, when I was when I was reading stuff. It's sort of it's not like you're reading a book that's like Wings of the Dove. It's more like The Rock was starring. That's sort of what I tell people. You know, it's it's, it's a fun thing to sort of sweep you up in with a couple you know poignant smoldering moments thrown in there. But yeah, no, I mean, I never expected anyone to ever read it, but yeah, I've been able to basically tick off pretty much every box there is in the literary world and kind of just happens. Yeah. I mean, so would you have ever guessed that this is where you would be right now? No, no, never guessed it. Again, not a master plan. I just every day did the best that I could trying to figure it out had an overall idea about what could potentially happen and, you know, fought through the haters and, you know, did my best to sort of celebrate the people that, you know, were in my corner and did my best and, and it worked out, you know, it's, I mean, it was, it was a hustle, but it worked out. Yeah. So if, if someone, I mean, is like myself has never heard of this uh, genre of mm-hmm. uh, literature, where can they go about jumping in? Like, where should they start? Where can they I mean, find uh, start with my books? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm on Amazon and Audible. Um, you know, and I'm in two languages now. I think I'm going to be a third one soon. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm all over all of the places that you can buy books. Um, and you know, like I said, I didn't know anything about it initially, but I I was a more or less quick study, and uh, so. The genre basically, again, is just, it's like, you know, I, I, the description that I use changes based on who my audience is. Like, if it's like some older person, I'm like, it's like Dungeons and Dragons, you know, and if it's like a, a 40 year old, I'm like, it's, as a gamer, it's like, it's like, it's World of Warcraft. As if it's, it's like, it's like, it's like Pokemon Go kind of thing. It's basically, it's like, as opposed to Lord of the Rings, where you read through and fantastic things happen and you use your imagination to a certain extent, this sort of breaks it down in a bit more formulaic way. So like smog would be described as like a level 42 dragon who had, you know, uh, fire breath is one of his special attacks, that kind of thing. It, it's fun in that, uh, if you're not a gamer, it's hard to really grasp, but if you've ever watched your boys play Nintendo back in the day and you spend a whole Saturday doing it, um, trying to see them, trying to beat the water level on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, something like that, you get the appeal. It's like why Twitch, that service where you just watch people play video games, is like a yeah. hundred million dollar industry. Um, it's and just and similarly, like the girl that couldn't stand watching you play games with your boy all day will hate. <laughs> just just pure up hate it uh uh which is not to say i don't have a lot of women fans it surprised me to learn that actually 30 no like 40 percent of all online gamers these days are women so yeah it's, it's kind of it's kind of cool yeah well you are definitely uh making this genre and interest available to so many people through your website people can go to litrpg.com they can visit your Facebook author page, uh, facebook.com backslash lit RPG books. There's an entire Facebook group for you under your name. We'll, of course, put these links in the show notes. I appreciate that, man. So, Alaron, um, in addition to everything that you've done, all the books that you've sold, the people who you've influenced through this, you've also been able to raise money for different charities over the past couple of years. 
How were you yeah. able to do that and which charities? Um, so we've done a lot of different charities. Uh, some of the primary ones are, uh, I can't off the top of my head. It's one of the major charities for breast cancer awareness. Um, a lot of the names are similar, so I don't want to misquote it. I think it might be breast cancer research fund, but I haven't, it was a couple of years ago. Um, but I think we raised about 20 grand for that. Um, we raised grand, uh, money for, uh, for disasters periodically, like, you know, hurricane Irma, that kind of thing. Uh, we built um, a couple uh, wells in Sudan. You know, we funded that through the water project. Uh, we did a really, we funded a really interesting local charity called Able Gamers, where basically they take uh, children who have um, physical deformities who cannot really interface or be verbal with the world, and they make custom rigs for them so that they can inter- interface in a virtual way. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of fundraising during COVID, where my community came together and did care packages for people that were having a hard time keeping the lights on or, you know, having a hard time getting groceries. Uh, <clears throat> but to answer your question, how, um, we do a lot of giveaways. Um, I do a lot of like, um, matching. My community is amazing and supportive. So whenever there is an issue, I say like, Hey, please, you know, please open your hearts, open your wallets. If you can, I'll, I'll donate, you know, whatever you want. Like, you know, whether it's like me doing a private zoom call with people, like, you know, we auction off things like that. Other authors have come in, and yeah, we've been able to raise over $150,000 over the last uh, five years or so. Um, so, you know, just doing what we can. Uh, when I made my community and this actually took off, I asked myself what I wanted from it. And I'm an American. I like money. It's not a problem with me saying that. Um, but it wasn't enough for me. So I was like, you know, let's use this as a tool for positive social change in a way that we can. So we do things like that. Oh, that's that's awesome. So I got to ask, do you still practice medicine? I am actually retired from medicine for three and a half years now. Do you miss it? You know, it's funny. Let me tell you the same thing. They'll be straight up with you. I miss it sometimes and think about going back. And then I will call a random doctor out of my phone. And 30 minutes later, I don't miss it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really do. I call a random doctor and they immediately just let loose with all the frustrations they have. And I'm like, hmm. Okay. And then, then I don't. Yeah. And if you had to go back, would you still go through medical school or would you go straight on to writing? You mean if I, I could go back in time? Yeah. Um, you know, so I think about that too. And I don't think that I would have written these books if I hadn't gone through what I'd gone through. Yeah. Medicine forged me in a, in a really, really real way. And Made help me to see and like seeing people at, at their lowest, understanding the things that they go through, connecting with your patients if you care at all. Uh, it really gives you an unvarnished look at humanity and the world to a certain extent. And I wouldn't change that view for anything. I also don't think that I would have written these books the same way if I was like, man, I, I need this to keep the lights on. Uh, when I wrote these books, I wrote them for me, and I think that that joy came across in the way that talks to people. Now, there's definitely things I would have done different. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's life. But um, I'm really happy for for how it all shook out. I mean, I just turned 40 um, about two weeks ago, losing weight. I got people that love me. I live in a place that I like. I'm happy on a, on a daily basis. I mean, I'm happy with all this all shook out. So, yeah, sounds like a, a beautiful life. Um... Dr. Kong, can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has truly been an incredibly insightful 
episode in the last half hour or so talking with you. Folks, please check out uh, the Instagram page, Lit RPG Books, as well as uh, Dr. Kong's Patreon account, Aleron Kong, A-L-E-R-O-N-K-O-N-G, on Patreon. And then, of course, you can check out his books on Amazon, as well as Audible, for those of us that like to uh, listen to audiobooks and we don't read all that much, like myself. But, oh man, thank you so much for joining us. The important part of this show is that representation matters and you truly are representative of so many things from medicine to an author to an upstanding citizen. So thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. If you enjoy listening, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. We are a small team and can use all the help we can get. You can reach us at the Black Doctors Podcast on Instagram or at Stephen Bradley MD on Twitter or Instagram. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters.